Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. Good morning. Despite the fact that we are still in quarantine and can no longer meet together and we need to keep our social distance from one another, the calendar marches on, doesn't it? And while we've seemed to put part of our world on hold, the world hasn't put itself on hold, has it? The calendar keeps on turning. And if you've lost track of time in your uh, isolation and quarantine, uh, welcome to today, Sunday, April 5th. It's uh, Palm Sunday. And yes, Palm Sunday is happening. Even though we didn't have the parade of children with palm branches this week, it is still Palm Sunday. And before we dive into John's gospel uh, and this Palm Sunday account this morning, I'm curious, who is the most famous person that you've ever met? I'd be curious to know. Uh, we probably couldn't do this on a normal Sunday, but maybe the fact that we're uh, meeting online will help us in this regard. In the comment section below the video, let, it, let me know who the most famous person you've met is. Um, and maybe we could have some sort of prize for the person who's rubbed shoulders with the most rich and famous among us to get some sort of trophy to present you or something. Um, probably the most famous person I've had the opportunity to meet is uh, John Randall. Uh, for some of you, that name might ring a bell. For others of you, uh, you're probably just staring blankly at your screens. <laughs> John Randall was a defensive lineman for the Minnesota Vikings in the 1990s. He was signed in 1990 as an undrafted free agent by the Vikings. And during his career in Minnesota and then later on in Seattle, uh, he recorded 137 and a half sacks with eight consecutive seasons of 10 or more sacks and then added a ninth season later on. In 1997, he led the, the NFL with 15 and a half sacks. Randall was named to seven Pro Bowls in his career and was named first team All-Pro seven times. In 2010, he was inducted into the NFL Hall of Fame. And I had the honor, the distinct privilege, let's say, of painting his garage floor. After graduating from the Free Lutheran Bible College, I worked at a garage floor coating company in the Twin Cities, and John Randall hired us to paint his garage floor. <laughs> and so I spent the better part of a few days in his garage cleaning and prepping the floor and then putting our epoxy polymer garage floor coating on it, all while having the opportunity to joke with him about how the late April snows uh, were sh putting a, a wrench in his golf plans. What about you? Who's the most famous person you've met? I'm sure there are some in our congregation who have rubbed shoulders with people more famous than John Randall. Uh, but even if we were to scroll through the comments and to figure out who exactly has met the most famous person, that's a bit subjective, isn't it? One, one man's famous person is another man's who is that? Uh, the fact that I met John Randall might not mean anything to you if you didn't grow up in the 90s idolizing these players. But let's say that the most admired person in America was coming to town, right here to Glendon. And in 2019, Forbes asked 
uh, who the most admired men and the most admired women were. The most admired man in the United States in 2019 was President Obama with nearly 20% of the vote. President Trump came in second with 10%. And uh, on, on the lady side of things, two of the three most admired women were first ladies. Michelle Obama was uh, in first place there. Melania Trump was in third place there. Uh, interestingly enough, right in the middle there, number two uh, was Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. 10% um, of that vote, you know, 86 years old and still on Supreme Court. That is admirable, whether you agree with her politics or disagree. But let's say for a second that both President Trump and President Obama were coming to town with their wives, and they were going to give speeches right here in Glendon for uh, the 4th of July. Let's say we're all back together then, and that's kind of the first big thing that we can do together, right? The 4th of July, and they've chosen Glendon, Minnesota, to come and to speak. Do you think that we as a community would roll out the red carpet for them? I think we would. I think the streets and the, the ditches would all be cleaned up. Residents would be asked to make sure that their lawns were mowed and the, all the garbage was cleaned up. We'd hang American flagposts from every banner, from every pole, from every post we could in town. Uh, the school would probably get the band back together again. We'd probably have a parade with balloons and floats and, and the whole nine yards. Could you imagine the murmuring that would go on beforehand? The presidents are coming. And that might just begin to capture the atmosphere that Jerusalem experienced that first Palm Sunday. But instead of their presidents, uh, their attention was fixed on Jesus. Jesus is coming. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd ask that you turn with me to John chapter 12, and we'll read uh, this account of Palm Sunday, John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. Again, it's the familiar account of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And there's a lot packed into this story this morning. So reading in Jesus' name, John chapter 12, again beginning at verse 12, reading in Jesus' name. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as had been written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him, and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he had called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you for this uh, text, this Palm Sunday text, a very familiar text for a lot of us, uh, but still with uh, a text with a lot of truth and a lot of uh, meaning packed into it. And we pray that you be with us this morning as we look into your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are two major themes that emerge from this Palm Sunday text. And the first is the arrival of the king. The arrival of the king. And John tells us that the king arrived in Jerusalem during Passover. 
Passover was and still is the major feast and the major festival of Judaism. It was uh, traditionally a pilgrimage feast when Jews from all over the world would return to Jerusalem uh, to remember and to celebrate the salvation that God had won for them by delivering them out of slavery in Egypt. It was also a very large gathering. The Jewish historian Josephus estimated that there were around 2.5 million people who would come and gather in Jerusalem for Passover. That number is probably a bit of a stretch. More conservative estimates place that number number around 100,000 pilgrims who would come and gather in Jerusalem to sacrifice the Passover lamb and to eat the meal with their families. But regardless of the number of attendees, the Passover celebration during that first Palm Sunday was big and it was also different. There was a different buzz in the air. Just weeks, maybe even days prior, Jesus had been in Bethany, a town just a few miles from Jerusalem, and there he had raised Lazarus from the dead. That miracle had been, become well-known, and the story had been circulated all over. It had caused quite a bit of a stir, too, not only again in Bethany, but also in Jerusalem. There was, there was no doubt about it. Lazarus had been dead for four days, dead and buried, and uh, in Martha's famous words, Lord, he stinketh. And, and that's why I believe the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead was, was that much more of a miracle. Uh, not for Jesus, anyway. It, it didn't require some extra power or ability on his part to perform that miracle. But it was a bigger miracle for those who witnessed it. They were not ignorant of of what death looked like or what death smelled like. They knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Lazarus was dead, good and dead. Now, this wasn't the first time that Jesus had raised somebody from the dead. Uh, The widow in Nain had her son restored to life. Uh, Jairus had his daughter's life given back to her. But these deaths were, if you will, um, fresh deaths. The widow's son had just died and was on his way to be buried. Uh, Jairus' daughter had died as, as he and, and Jesus were en route to see her. Skeptics could have looked at those two instances and said, well, those kids weren't exactly dead. Maybe, maybe they were in a coma or had fallen into a really deep sleep and everybody thought they were dead. And all that Jesus had to do was, was to simply shake them hard enough to wake them up or, or something like that, Right? But, but Lazarus and, and the raising of Lazarus from the dead, four days dead, uh, not even the skeptics who heard the stories could deny that. And the large crowd that came for Passover wanted to see Jesus. And there had been debate for a long time as to whether or not Jesus was the Messiah. Whenever Jesus was asked, he never gave a, a straight yes or no answer, which was probably wise because if he had told them, straight up, yes, I am the Messiah, they would have probably tried to come and make him king by force like they did after he fed the 5,000 in John chapter 6. And so Jesus always deflected their questions, never denying it, but never uh, straight up again saying, yep, I'm the promised one. I'm the one you're looking for. And maybe the crowd in, in Jerusalem who gathered for Passover saw Jesus' raising of Lazarus as an undeniable sign that he was in fact, the Messiah. He, uh, no one could have power over death like that unless he had been sent by the Lord. 
And apparently there was some debate and discussion too uh, whether or not uh, Jesus would come to the Passover that year in Jerusalem. In John chapter 11, just before this text, we're told that they were looking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? Will he come to the feast at all? So uh, when it was told to them that, yes, in fact, Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they were thrilled. Maybe now, they thought, maybe now Jesus will finally tell us that he is, in fact, the Messiah. And so they go out to see him, to see the arrival of the king and to give him a royal welcome. As they go in verse 13, they, they take palm branches with them to wave them uh, to Jesus. And for the Israelites, palms and palm branches were symbols of joy. In Leviticus chapter 23, verse 40, the Lord prescribes the use of palm branches as an essential part of the festival celebrations that were to be waved and to be waved in joy. The Lord said this, You shall take branches of palm trees and boughs of leafy trees and the willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. So as the crowds head out to meet Jesus with that first Palm Sunday, they, they're celebrating with joy. And for the Israelites, palm branches were also a symbol of victory. Uh, for example, in 142 B.C., Simon Maccabeus had freed Jerusalem from the, uh, from the control of the Seleucids. Uh, the Seleucids were Greeks who had been given control of uh, Judah after Alexander the Great's demise a, a few hundred years before. And anyway, the, the Seleucids were, again, Greeks, and they were ruling Judah. And Simon and his brothers had formed a band of guerrilla warriors and drove out the Seleucids from Judah. And when Simon entered into Jerusalem, he entered essentially as a king and was greeted uh, with thanksgivings and branches of palm trees and harps and cymbals and stringed instruments and hymns and songs because he had destroyed a great enemy out of Israel. All that to say, palm branches were associated with victory. So you could say that as the crowds greeted Jesus that Palm Sunday, they did so with joyous victory in mind. The crowd from Jerusalem also greeted Jesus with shouts of praise that day. Uh, verse 13 of our text says this, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Hosanna is a Hebrew word uh, that means save. In Jesus' day, it had also kind of become a, a greeting that you would give to one another. And as the crowd greets Jesus with it, the, they use this word Hosanna almost as a command. Uh, give us salvation. Save us, they're saying to Jesus. The word Hosanna was a very familiar phrase to, to nearly everybody in Israel. It was part of the great Hallel, the great praise that was often sung by the Jewish people. The great Hallel, as it's come to be called, was comprised of six different psalms that were all sung together. Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And this morning we read together some of the verses of the Hallel during our scripture reading. But it became customary for these songs to be sung during the Jewish feasts. Uh, for example, during the Passover in Jesus' day, the Hallel was sung in stages part of it during the meal and part of it after the meal. And not only was Psalm 118 a psalm of praise, it was also seen even in Jesus' day as a messianic psalm, meaning that it pointed forward to the Messiah who was to come. 
uh, listen again to these words from Psalm 118. They should sound familiar, but also listen for what you think would be the messianic undertones in these verses. These are verses 25 and 26. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Did you notice that these verses are the same verses that the crowds greeted Jesus with? And the phrase or the designation as coming in the name of the Lord was usually seen as messianic. The Messiah, the Savior, would come in the name of the Lord. And on Palm Sunday, the crowds in Jerusalem sang these verses to Jesus, and in so doing, they were acknowledging that he came in the name of the Lord. He was coming as the Messiah. And I think the crowd believed that this was it. Jesus of Nazareth was finally going to be the Messiah, the Savior that they were anticipating. Another Simon Maccabeus to, to overthrow the evil empire that was oppressing them. They would finally be rid of the rule of Rome and of the Caesars. After Jesus had dodged the question as to whether or not he was a Messiah for so long, and, and after definitively proving that, yes, he was by raising a dead guy, a four days dead dead guy, this was it. Jesus had finally revealed himself as the Messiah. Our new king is coming. We're finally going to overthrow the Romans and get our country back. Jesus, of course, had other ideas, didn't he? He didn't come to overthrow Rome and to set up an earthly kingdom. The crowds were correct. Jesus was the Messiah, but not in a way that they had expected or anticipated. He did ride into Jerusalem as a king, but not the king they anticipated. He would save them and grant them salvation, but again, not in a way that they were prepared for. And the donkey that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on perfectly illustrated this peaceful entry into Jerusalem. Look at verses 14 and 15 again of John chapter 12. And it says this, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it has been written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Conquering kings and, and victorious emperors rode in, in gold-plated gold chariots pulled by majestic war horses. Donkeys were ridden by common people, were used for work. They were, they were beasts of burden, and nobody in their right mind would ride a donkey into battle. Uh, donkeys were, if anything, the exact opposite of a war horse. It was used in, in, during times, really, of peace and prosperity. Uh, a donkey, and the donkey that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on was a demonstration of the peaceable nature of his mission. And the Old Testament passage that John quotes from is from Zechariah 9, and it highlights that peaceable nature of Jesus. Listen to this, Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river and to the ends of the earth. 
in these verses, Zechariah foresees the king of Jerusalem arriving, but not coming prepared for war. Zechariah saw the king coming in humility and bringing with him salvation and peace. And as Jesus entered into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, he entered with the intention of granting salvation and peace to his people in the spiritual sense. He knew that their greatest need was not a physical nation where they could dwell securely for a short time. He knew that peace, true peace between God and man was a greater, more urgent need for his people. And so Jesus would willingly give his life in order to redeem our lives from sin. Our our souls have been bound by sin and and were eternally indebted because of our sin. But yet Jesus came to redeem, came to purchase us back from sin. And the price he paid was paid with his blood. As he hung on the cross that Good Friday, just days after his triumphal entry, as he hung on that cross, he shed his blood, giving his life in exchange for you, for your your soul. His death paid the price for your salvation, for your deliverance. Your king gave his life for you, redeeming you from death. That is the purpose that Jesus had as he entered into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. That was the mission that he had set out to accomplish. Our redemption was at hand. And how was this humble Redeemer King received? What kind of reception did he get? The second major theme that emerges in this Palm Sunday text is the reception of the King And I see four different groups, each who received the king in different ways. And the first group that that John mentions is the disciples. In verse 16, we read about the, the fogginess of the disciples. Look at that verse again. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Have you ever felt in the fog? <laughs> Maybe it's because of a, of a head cold and your mind is not just you know, firing on all cylinders. Or, or maybe you've been listening to a conversation that's completely over your head and you're just absolutely lost as to what's going on. Well, the disciples too were in a fog. And as it happened so often, it happened again. The disciples did not understand, did not see clearly, didn't rightly comprehend what was going on. Maybe they were caught up in the moment too. Maybe they were hoping that this was the moment that their rabbi would take control and would usher in the political reform that they were waiting for. As Luke records the early history of the church, he gives a a very interesting insight into the minds of the uh, disciples immediately following Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. In Acts chapter 1, right before Jesus ascends to the Father, uh, Luke records the final question that the disciples ask Jesus, and it's this, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It's as if they're saying, okay, Lord, you've done all of this death and dying part. You've proven to us that you are the Messiah and that you are master over death. And yes, that's a pretty cool trick, pretty handy if we're going to go overthrow Rome. Can it be now that we do this and now that you restore the kingdom to Israel? They were still foggy. 
John tells us that it was after Jesus was glorified, after he ascended into heaven, and after the Holy Spirit had been given at Pentecost, that the disciples were finally able to emerge from the fog and to put two and two together. With the Spirit's help, they were finally able to rightly grasp the kingship of Jesus. And the second group of people who received the king on that Palm Sunday was the crowd that accompanied Jesus from Bethany. In verse 17, we see the Bethany crowd's witness. Look at that verse again. Uh, Then the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, it wasn't a private matter. Many people had come to comfort Mary and Martha in their grief. And unlike some of his other miracles, Jesus didn't send the crowds away or usher them away or just take Mary and Martha to the tomb. This miracle was witnessed by a significant group of people. They were not shy about what they had seen either. They continued to share the story, or as John put it, they continued to bear witness. Have you ever had a story that you just can't keep to yourself? Something that you just have to share with every one or with every buddy? And I guess really that's what social media is for, isn't it? Maybe it was a good joke or a funny video. Maybe it was a significant life event like an engagement or the birth of a child. And you know, we're getting pretty close to the due date uh, for our new little guy. My wife is due uh, April 14th, so just over a week from now. And you can be sure that when he is born, uh, we're going to tell a few people. There are definitely going to be some text messages that are going to be sent back and forth, some phone calls made, some pictures that we're going to share, things like that, right? When you've got great news, you just want to share it. And that's what the crowd that accompanied Jesus from Bethany did. They told everyone what Jesus had done. And the third group of people who received the king on that Palm Sunday was the crowd who was in Jerusalem for the Passover. In verse 18, we see the Jerusalem crowd's curiosity. Look at verse 18 again. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. This was the the group that had been in Jerusalem for the Passover. This was the group that had been waving the palm branches and putting their coats down on the path and shouting, Hosanna, as Jesus walked by. Word that Jesus had raised Lazarus, a a guy who had been dead for four days from the tomb, that made it to Jerusalem. And those who heard this miracle were curious. And as we've already talked about, they were interested to see if this guy was the Messiah or not. Was he going to finally take up that mantle of Messiah? There's a fourth group who received the king that Palm Sunday that we need to briefly touch on as well. In verse 19, we see the Pharisees' frustration. Look at verse 19, the Pharisees' frustration. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The Pharisees, observing the triumphal entry of Jesus that day and and seeing the fervor of the crowd, finally realized that all of this Messiah talk had gone too far. Jesus had gone from being an itinerant traveling rabbi teaching uh, against their uh, pharisaical religious rules and performing some miracles to a national figure who was, if the crowd had had it their way, who would be inducted as their Messiah. 
Right after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, the chief priests and the Pharisees got together to discuss what they were going to do about Jesus. This was right after Lazarus was raised from the dead. John chapter 11, starting at verse 47, it says this, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take both our place and our nation. And then in verse 53 it says, So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. While the crowds wanted Jesus to come and to overthrow the Romans, the Pharisees were a little bit wiser uh, about that, and they knew that overthrowing Rome would be no small feat. They were comfortable with the arrangement that they had, but they were getting frustrated with the people for proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah, and they were getting frustrated with Jesus as well. And so in their frustrations, the Pharisees had rejected Jesus. And part of their rejection of Jesus fulfilled another part of the prophecy from the great Hallel. In Psalm 118, verse 22, just uh, three verses from the cry of Hosanna, we read this prophecy of the Messiah. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Very soon, Jesus would be rejected, and not only by the Pharisees, but also by the very crowds that were currently singing him Hosanna and continuing to sing his praises. They would reject him and, and choose a murderer to be set free instead of Jesus. And as Psalm 118 tells us, that stone that was rejected has become the cornerstone. When a building's foundation was laid, the most important part was the, the very beginning, the very first stone, the cornerstone. It was the most important in all of the building. It was the straightest. It was a stone that helped every other stone uh, be level and square. If the cornerstone is off just a bit, the rest of the building would be off as well. And in his rejection, Jesus has become our cornerstone. He is the most important piece, the piece that helps to level and to straighten out everything in our life. He is our cornerstone. He is our Redeemer. He is our Messiah. And that brings us really to the end of this Palm Sunday text, this triumphal entry story. And for many of us, right, it's, it's a familiar story. It's a story that we've heard as kids waving the palm branches in the air. Maybe, maybe the only thing uh, new that you learned this morning was that the most famous person I've ever run into isn't that famous at all. <laughs> maybe you're asking yourself, so what? So what does all of this have to do with me? Yes, Jesus arrived in Jerusalem as a king, and yes, the disciples and the Pharisees and the rest of the people didn't understand that his kingdom was a kingdom of grace. So what? The point of all of it is this. The major thought that I want you to take away from this text is this. Jesus is still king. He is still on the throne at the right hand of the Father. He is still ruling and reigning even right now. And that means that things, as, as crazy as they are, yep, even in this era of, of COVID, even in this era of social distancing and isolation, of cancer, of untimely death, of car breakdowns and leaky water pipes, he is still the king. He is still in control. And we long for that day when the king, who has already secured our eternal redemption, returns to claim his own and to set up his eternal kingdom the kingdom that rids the world once and for all of sin, of death, and the devil, the kingdom in which he will wipe away every tear from every eye, the kingdom in which he will come and make all things new. 
Amen. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus.